0: What's up, friends? Today, we got another awesome show. Our returning guest is the co-founder of Forefront Venture Partners, one of the largest and most successful syndicates on AngelList. If you want to hear his first episode with us, scroll back to episode number 97, or simply click on the link in the show notes. In today's episode, we start with an update on our guests when they first appeared almost three years ago. We touch on some of the guest portfolio companies, including names you've heard directly on the podcast, like the Unicorn Grove Collaborative, TenSpot, Party Slate, and Remove. After learning about our guest role on Gimlet podcast, The Pitch, we hear why he chose to launch a rolling fund and the benefits of a rolling fund provides to both founders and investors. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Long time listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities, typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner, and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10East.co. That's the number 10East.co. Please enjoy this episode with Forefront Venture Partners, Bill Nadell. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Good to be back. You know, man, I don't know how, but last time we had you on was three years ago. Can you believe it?
1: No, it does not seem like it's been that long. I can't believe it. I think a lot
0: has happened in those three years, to say the least. I know. Well, we'll get to catch up quite a bit on it because I've been wanting to go to one of your founder startup breakfasts and then a pandemic hit, so I didn't get go in. And if you started those back up again...
1: Not yet, but we're planning the next one now. We're in the early stages of planning it, but I think
0: it's going to be East Coast first time and then we'll go West Coast. That's fine. So unless you're on the East Coast when we're doing it. I may make a special exception for this because I've invested along with you and probably about, I mean, you're one of the most prolific of the angel investors I follow and it's got to be around 15 investments. That's great. I appreciate the support and I'd love to see you again at the breakfast
1: and we love doing those. That you know, was something I really, really missed during the pandemic. And that's why I'm scheduling one now.
0: So listeners, I would highly encourage you to go listen to the first show Phil and I did, because we talk about a number, talk about his process and everything that they do, but also a number of portfolio companies. And it's funny because so much has transpired. And you know, these only couple short years with those portfolio companies we mentioned, including... The listeners can't see this, but there is a beautiful digital painting in the background, which we talked about, which was a startup company called Mural. It's one of my favorite things I have in the house. And they got bought. I love it. I love it. They did. They sold the the company to Netgear
1: and it's a great exit. And the company's doing well now as part of Netgear. And
0: I love having my mural in the background here. I look at it almost every day. It's great. So, for listeners who aren't familiar, Mural is like this beautiful digital frame that lets you have paintings, pictures, whatever, from all the famous museums. But the cool part is that also you can wave your hand in front of it. It tells you who painted it, what year. It's got like that little placard. If you don't like it, you can just walk up and swat it, say next, like a Tinder swipe. But you can... Set it up custom, too. I love it so much. Anyway, enough of a commercial.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I customized
0: mine a bit. And I didn't
1: do this, but you can upload your own content, too. Like, if your kids happen to be artistic, which mine aren't, but if your kids are artistic or whatever, you can upload their stuff or photos of your family. But I don't use it for that. I like getting the paintings from best museums around the world. And the quality, to me, the quality of the image is, like, so good. It's like you can feel the texture almost, even though you can't really, but it look, it's the quality is so good.
0: All right. So Phil, you've been a prolific angel. Why don't you catch us up a little bit on what you guys have been up to the past couple of years? Give us a kind of maybe the one minute overview of who you are, what you do for the new listeners, and then catch us up and what's been going on the last few years.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So eight years ago, we launched the Angelus syndicate called Forefront Venture Partners. And we've just been doing the same old thing since then, which is to say, we have a really strict process. We do typically like eight to 10 deals a year. And you know this, Matt, but for everyone else's benefit, we do very, very thorough due diligence. And that's sort of our hallmark, I would say. We do more due diligence at an early stage than any other investor I know of. We also are really committed to communications transparency and communications with our investors in our syndicate. So what that means in practice is we make all the companies we invest in sign an agreement in advance that not only will they help us to put together a really extensive deal memo, but they'll do a webinar for our investors. And then after we invest, they commit to providing us with regular, detailed Investor updates. These are usually monthly, sometimes quarterly. So that's the kind of communication that our investors crave because they don't get it anywhere else. Before we started the syndicate, and maybe you had this experience too, but before we started the syndicate, I invested in companies directly. And let's say 10 years ago, I maybe have never gotten an update in 10 years. And that's very frustrating. I can't do anything to help the company because I don't know what they need help with. I don't know what's happening. And I certainly would not be inclined to invest further in those companies if they ever reached out and asked me. So it's in the company's best interest to communicate because they can get a lot of help from our syndicate investors. And it's in the investor's best interest. And the companies will also be able to raise additional capital in the future from them.
0: I think this is really important. And I follow probably a hundred syndicates on angel list as well as elsewhere and have seen kind of all the good, the bad behavior and in between. And it is consistently astonishing to me to see on either the VC angel syndicate side or the company side, either a disinterest or unwillingness. And I'm excluding like the 10% of the time where they're not reaching out because of serious competitive stealth confidentiality reasons. The vast majority of the time, Like you said, the outreach, having a large group accredited by definition, so wealthy, but likely highly accomplished investors and not utilizing that base is crazy to me. And like as an example, and you may know this, I think we talked about it a while back. I said, look, all these portfolio companies, I love their stories. If I invest them, they're welcome to come on the show. We'll even give them a free radio ad. And reach audiences, I think it's almost like 10 million downloads at this point. And people, a lot of them take us up on it. But anyway,
1: it's just weird. Yeah. No, you've been great about that. So that's one way that you're able to help them. And you've been great about doing that. And our investors, including you, have found lots of ways to help our portfolio companies. Mostly, it's about customer referrals. And hiring, yeah. So real hiring too, but I'd say number one is customer referrals. So Our portfolio companies, including the ones you've invested in, have gotten a lot of customers from our syndicate investors referring them. And they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that if they don't know what kind of companies they're looking for, if they don't hear from those companies. So the communication is critical for the company. And I always tell them, communicate whether it's good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter. Because in good times, you certainly want to spread the word. But when things are bad, you can't hide under a rock. You have to let them know and let them know how they can help. If you communicate regularly, everyone understands challenges, companies go through ups and downs. But if things get bad and you hide under a rock as a CEO, then that's not excusable. Investors will not look past that.
0: Yeah, I say that actually a bunch. I say, look, this sort of ostrich mentality It's fine to fail. In fact, in Silicon Valley and entrepreneurship, it's like a badge of honor that if you were an entrepreneur, you failed and failed right, meaning with like transparency and dignity and honor and openness. And learned from it, hopefully. Right. Like, I mean, most investors I know would almost rather invest in some of those founders because they have the scars and they've been through it. But the ones that just like turtle and disappear you're writing your own gravestone. You just don't, you probably don't know it yet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not a good way to go. So we really discourage that obviously. And that's why we make them sign an agreement in advance saying that they'll give us these updates regularly. And then when they see that it pays off for them, when they see the referrals that they get and the hiring help that they get, they're quick to continue with it. They understand the value. Even during our the syndication process, before we finalized our investment, they get a lot of
0: benefit, a lot of referrals and things like that. So they see it right away. Well, I mean, even to get some of these names on the cap table, if you look through and see who's in this, and it's like a who's who of investors, but also operators, like you mentioned, at some of these companies, being able to get that access, yeah. it's almost like the company should pay for it, <laughs>
1: you know, and not the other way around. Yeah, no, the roster of investors we have in the syndicate is tremendous. I mean, they, so many of them work at huge tech companies, and they're anxious to help refer their own employers in to these portfolio companies. It's worked out very well. There are a lot of synergies. But taking a step back, you had asked more generally sort of what's been going on. And just to continue with that, we're still, we see tremendous deal flow. Probably now more than ever, so it's an ongoing battle to keep up with the deal flow, calling out the good deals from the bad. You figure we only do eight to ten a year on average. We look at thousands per year, literally thousands, to get to those eight or ten. So there's a lot of calling out that has to happen even before we start, like serious due diligence. So there's a lot of work that goes on there, and we invest across, as you know, a wide swath of sectors really try to help our investors build the diversified portfolio. So we're not focused on just one sector or one business model. We really try to build a diversified portfolio because that's how we and our investors get the best possible portfolio outcomes, the best possible returns is building that portfolio. Because if you just concentrate in one industry, one sector, and then all of a sudden that sector doesn't do well for a while, then your whole portfolio is doomed. If you spread it out and diversify,
0: you've got a better chance. But I'm preaching to the choir. I know you know this. Right. So give us just some uh, broad overview. You, I think last time we spoke, are one of the largest syndicates on AngelList. How many deals have you guys done so far? We've done something like 80 initial investments, but then we do follow-on rounds
1: as well. So if you include follow-on rounds, we've done over 100 rounds. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We have the best syndicate community. I mean, our investors are amazing. And I call it a community because it is. I mean, we really are. And you mentioned the breakfasts. That's just one way that we sort of build the community. But
0: gathering together to help our portfolio companies is really another way. Uh, Definitely, there's a debt of gratitude. Obviously, a little luck sprinkled in. But one of my very first investments going way back, and I think my first with you, Was a company we talked about a little bit last time on the podcast, Grove. And we eventually had the founder Stu on the show, and they've been an absolute rocket ship, full unicorn status. So I don't know if I would have followed through as much with my investing journey had uh, not had that early company. So that gold star gives you an extra look anytime uh, one of the deals comes by. I'll review it two or three times just to make sure. Thank you.
1: Yeah, Grove Collaborative has been a real success story. Stu, the CEO, the founder, is a real rock star. Here's a story of a guy who's really committed to the mission of the company. The company is doing good by making more sustainable products, healthier products, non toxic products for your home. And the last valuation was $2 billion. We invested initially at a $12 million valuation. That's where you first got in and I first got in. It's gone from 12 million in our first investment. We've invested in every round since, and the last round was 2 billion. I think that they'll be IPOing soon. And I've been a customer since we invested. Think their products are great. So yeah, that one has worked out very, very well. But we've had a lot of other winners too. So I'm really happy.
0: Why don't we talk about a couple while we're at it here to the extent you can? I know that you have 80 children, you're not going to pick out any favorites, but are there any that you think are particularly interesting story, interesting founders, something cool that's been going on? Any fun news? Maybe let's walk through a couple just to kind of give them a shout out.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. I love talking about them. So if you look at sort of interesting things that evolved out of the pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, Grin's a great story and they've been killing it and they help e-commerce companies to reach out and connect with influencers, but not only connect with them, but to manage the relationships, payments, sending of samples, analytics for their relationships with influencers. Of course, e-commerce did exceedingly well, has continued to do well during the pandemic. And so Grin's business really took off like a rocket. Another company that was an interesting beneficiary of COVID was OpenReel. And OpenReal is a technology that enables companies to get video off location video at the highest quality level and enables the companies to direct the video remotely. So, in other words, big companies, when they want like pre pandemic, when they wanted like a testimonial or a commercial or something like that, they'd send a video crew out and the video crew would set up and they would have to travel and they would do the whole film shoot now with open reel they don't need to do that these companies can get the same quality remotely and they can also direct the whole video the whole shoot as if they were there they can direct the lighting they can change the lighting they can change the angles the whole thing they can do remotely so from the time that we invested eight months later the company was about 10x the revenue 10x to ARR from when we invested. And it just took off because so many companies obviously had to stop traveling, but they still wanted the content more than ever. And so this enabled them to do it at really high quality remotely. So that's another sort of interesting one.
0: Both of those are great examples of, in my mind, one of the reasons it's so important to diversify. The pandemic has made this obvious, of course, in the past year. But as you think about the future, whether it's Recessions, expansions, low interest rates, high interest rates, yada, yada, whatever it may be, there will always be some companies positioned on the wrong foot and on the right foot to benefit that will struggle and fail. And last year, I think, accelerated a lot of those obvious changes pretty dramatically. Now, granted, most companies probably that are startups, I would say the percentage was more in their favor simply because they often are tech-focused. But it's a good example that so many early-stage angel investors want to bet the farm on only a few bets. And that's one of the reasons you want to have a nice portfolio.
1: Yeah. Well, you bring up a good point I want to talk about a little bit, which is the pandemic had companies that benefited and companies that definitely did not benefit. And I brought up two that benefited. But I want to bring up a couple that did not benefit because What we found is that this pandemic really like, made it crystal clear to us which founders were resourceful, were smart, were able to adapt quickly to the changes, the very rapid changes that were going on. So when we look at portfolio companies that were 100% dependent on in-person events, for example, and the pivots that they had to make. It highlights which founders are rock stars and which weren't. So a couple of great examples. There's a company in our portfolio that was called FitSpot. It's now called Tenspot. Their business used to be working with residential, multifamily you know buildings in New York, uh, residential buildings, apartment buildings, and they would do like yoga classes for the buildings. And they would work with the management company who would have them come in and do classes for their tenants. And they'd get paid for that. Well, of course, COVID hit. No one's doing these in-person classes anymore. That whole business, the entire business was shut down. So what did they do in like no time? They pivoted the entire business to an online model where all these companies now, instead of offering in-person yoga classes, now they could... Use this 10 spot platform to engage with their remote employees online, do events for them, have all kinds of cool interactions with each other online to make them feel like a team building exercise, things like that, all online. And the company is doing better than ever in a short period because of the pivot. I mean, this was a real blessing in disguise. Like, they never would have changed their model. They would have built a nice company, I'm sure, with FitSpot in the in person classes because they were doing great. But with 10 Spot, it just took off. But they had to quickly pivot. And it's hard. It's hard for entrepreneurs to give up their dream. They had this dream and they've been working on it every day and night for years. And all of a sudden, at the drop of a hat, they have to just pivot into something completely different and go full force on that. And they did that. John and Sammy at TenSpot did that, and to their credit.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at adversity, and we had Sammy on the show, and it's such a great story, people, that stressor, and it could be long recessions in bear markets. If you look at, I think Uber famously was founded in like March of 09 or something. And so going through those experiences, and then the expectation, and it's okay, like it's not shameful to fail, but to watch some of those like phoenixes where they're like capable of that pivot and making it through it. It's astonishing. It's, I, I could never do too much work for me.
1: <laughs> it's a testament to the founder's resilience because it would have been understandable. Like you said, it would have been understandable to throw in the hat, just say, you know what? Pandemic put us out of business. That's an easy story to tell. We were a completely offline company, pandemic hit, we went out of business, but they didn't do that. They did not settle for that. And another company that comes to mind is Party Suite. And PartySlate, Julie is the CEO there and the founder, completely offline business. They're a SaaS company enabling party venues, caterers, florists, those are their clients. So all that business, as you know, is shut down during COVID. And so what service do they provide anymore to their customers if they don't have the events in person? Well, they showed them how to do marketing online, how to build their online presence, how to engage with prospects online. So when COVID's over post-pandemic, they can plan their events. And they did all kinds of educational content for their customers online. So again, they pivoted to providing real significant value to customers online. And now that events are starting to come back, That's just a supplement to what they're doing. It's made their offering that much more valuable to their customers. Now it's incredibly valuable. So their stickiness is even better than it was before, their retention rates. So another testament to resilience with Julie at PartySlate, again, just saying, okay, what do we need to do? What do our customers need? What service can we provide that will be of value to them?
0: Yeah, we had her on the podcast during the pandemic. It was like April or May. And you get to hear in the trenches, like what's going on and listeners, you should definitely check out their Instagram. It's super fun to uh, see all the cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're prolific uh, yeah, posters. Yeah. All there. the cool party ideas. One more I just want to mention quickly because I think it's... Oh, we can do 10 more. I, lo- I could do like entrepreneur <laughs> stories all day. Yeah. No, I love talking about this too, because I, our founders are so great. I mean, The
1: company I'm thinking of is Boundless. Xiao is the founder and CEO. And the tough period that they went through was different than the pandemic. It was partially pandemic, but it started before that because they help immigrants to become U.S. citizens. Well, when Donald Trump was in the White House and he shut down a lot of the immigration, you can imagine that that seriously impacted their business. But- they had the staying power, the willpower, the resourcefulness to find opportunities even in that environment. And then to roll right into pandemic, where travel and immigration is basically cut down to nothing. Again, they've been resourceful. One thing they did, which was so smart, is to acquire another company in the space, a competitor, and to build out their business and their technology in anticipation of business opening back up. And that's what's happening. The company built out their scope of services by doing this acquisition. And they've really grown and positioned themselves nicely for more growth post-Trump, post-pandemic. So they had to really go through an even longer period of trudging through, getting to a brighter future. And they've done a great job. Xiao's done a great job shepherding the company. So yeah, there's so many great stories like that.
0: One of my favorite ideas that I think is in the early stages in this trend, one of my favorite trends to invest in is this concept of sort of recycling and decreased consumption and the whole remove concept of picking up and selling your junk. I think particularly as people get back into the world and think about, all these people moving, particularly in San Fran and elsewhere. Check it out. It's a fun story. And
1: Yeah. Remove is the company. Luis is the founder. It's R-E-M-O-O-V. It's an unconventional spelling. So my brother lives out in San Francisco or just outside in Marin County. And, he and his family just decided to move. Like a lot of people in San Francisco, they're moving to the East Coast. And they just did the move last Friday. And I was talking to him and he's like, Oh, we have so much crap that we've saved over the years, and I don't know what to do with all this stuff. I said, I have the answer for you. Contact remove, they'll get rid of the stuff. They'll either sell it for you and give you half the proceeds, or they'll donate it and give you the receipts for your taxes, or they'll recycle it, whatever, and they will dispose of it for you. So he was like, All right, I'll call him. So he did, and it worked out great. It remove it and again. During the pandemic, people weren't moving, but they found ways to help Like companies that were downsizing and had to get rid of their office space. They needed to remove. The companies were going remote and closing down their offices. They needed to get rid of all the junk in their offices. He worked with them. So he found opportunities, even though their primary business was basically shut down. And now that things are coming back for their primary business, they have this whole secondary corporate business. So- another great example. He's a great founder.
0: Yeah. And we're just waiting for him to fully expand in LA and elsewhere because we've accumulated a lot of stuff. So yeah. as soon as it happens. We have too. We've
1: been in our house a long time. I always say to my wife, we
0: can never move. <laughs> we just have too much junk. Well, there you go. You found a solution. So, okay. There's been some The blocking and tackling, the investing, everything that's been going on the past couple of years. You guys have been successful. You've been doing the podcast pitch. Has that ever resulted in any investments, by the way?
1: Yes, many. Oh, really? Foundless, the company I mentioned, I met Shao on the pitch. I met Mike Slay, the CEO of Shift, on the pitch. Yeah. Let's see which other ones. Party Slay. Yeah. Uh, I met Julie on the pitch. So, there have been some other ones. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great. I love doing it. It's a lot of fun. And uh, actually, I'll be probably doing a a new show on this company we invested in recently called Looped. Be doing probably a show with them very soon. So, a lot of great opportunities and so many good companies out there. But I want to, you know, you asked me about the syndicate, but I want to point something out. So, yeah, we've been doing great with the syndicate. But as we go along, there's a regular problem that I've noticed, and that is that the syndicate model is not right for every company or every deal for a few reasons. And I've struggled over the years to try to find a way to invest in like deals that I really love that weren't a fit for the syndicate model. And when I say they weren't a fit, it's primarily because they're like closing the round in a week and they don't have time to do the syndication or they don't have enough allocation for us. It's a tight deal. There's a couple hundred thousand dollars left. We need more than that for the syndicate, as you know. Or they say, we have a lot of sensitive information we can't disclose to like a broad group of people like a syndicate. So for whatever reason, there are deals that we run into that we're like dying to get into that we can't get into on a syndicate. And I've always had to just pass on those over the years. And so fairly recently, as you know, AngelList introduced this rolling fund concept. And I was like, ah, that could be the solution to my problem For when I can't invest in a company through the syndicate, we can do it through the rolling fund. And
0: that's what we did. So explain to the listeners what that is. What does a rolling fund mean?
1: Yeah. So it's an interesting hybrid of like a traditional venture fund. Traditional venture funds, you have to commit a large amount of capital upfront. And then the general partner of the fund can call that commitment anytime they want. So it's usually like a half a million dollar minimum or more. And that money has to be available for any time the general partner calls for it. And it's usually over like a 10-year period, 7 to 10-year period. But the rolling fund is completely different. It's quarterly commitments. And it's as little as $10,000 per quarter that you can commit to to invest. And you can cancel at any time. Investors can cancel whenever they want. So you can just literally do one quarter if you wanted to. Most investors sort of subscribe and continue every quarter. and. It gives you access, gives investors access to every deal we syndicate, but also deals that we're not able to syndicate, like I mentioned. Some people like you are very busy and don't have the time to review every single deal. So it saves them that time of having to do that without the risk of missing a deal. And they also get more portfolio diversification because they're going to invest in more deals over time. So they get that. And then another real like financial benefit is that with a syndicate, the carry, the carried interest is paid on a deal by deal basis. So if you do really well on one deal, then you're going to pay carry to us on that deal. And if you lose money on another deal, you don't owe us any carry, but we're not giving any carry back from it's all deal by deal basis. But that's not the case on the rolling fund. Angelus looks at it as your whole subscription period. So if you subscribe for a year, the carry is figured out for that whole year. So the good and the bad deals will wash each other out, and you'll end up paying probably less carry, unless every deal is a winner, you'll end up paying less carry overall than you would on a deal-by-deal basis. I realize the rolling fund is not for everyone but it's certainly for a lot of investors. And most of the investors, I'd say, I think all of the investors in the fund do both the fund and the syndicate.
0: What's the experience been like as far as from your side? Is it kind of check the boxes you you thought ahead of time? It's new, it's
1: early days yet. Just now finishing our first quarter of the fund. We only made a few investments. They were the deals that we syndicated. But right now we have two, maybe three, deals teed up to invest in that we can't syndicate. One is a $150,000 investment, just too small for us to do through the syndicate. And another has to close very, very soon. So we're likely to do those through the rolling fund, as well as any deals that we
0: do syndicate. So we have a couple teed up to go. That's awesome. As you look forward, how have things changed over the past five years as far as Companies you're looking at, you mentioned some of these 100,000, 200,000 are too small for the syndicate. Does that mean you guys are now deploying like into the millions or what's the, how do things change as you guys get more popular and, and bigger?
1: Yeah, it grows over time. You know, our typical investments, half a million to a million, that's our sweet spot. We really don't like to get an allocation of less than half a million for the syndicate because if we do, we get some irate syndicate members who who get frustrated because they get shut out of the deal. So we like to make at least a half a million
0: available. And we've had a few deals that have been a million and more. I mean, can't you just say first in, first out, like say too bad guys, you don't respond.
1: Yeah, yeah, we can say. First come, first serve, but the problem is a lot of people are busy and don't have time and they say, oh, I didn't get to it right away. We'll say, stop complaining, go into the rolling fund. <laughs> right. Well, that's the answer. The rolling fund helps that. That's what i was saying, for sure. But the syndicates become quite large, and, which is a really good thing, but we need to make sure we get proper allocation for them. And a lot of companies have no problem with it. So it gives us a lot of flexibility because we're able to look at all different size deals now. We can look at deals where we can take down a million dollar piece, as well as deals where we can invest $100,000. So it gives us a little bit like sort of broader
0: array of size deals that we can look at, which is really nice. What's the environment like now? I tweeted the other day, I said, certainly the range of what you would consider to be a seed or maybe even series A valuations has certainly expanded as markets have kind of romped up. Are you seeing it competitive push-pull on chatting with founders or the other, it's part challenge and a good thing that there's so many people coming into the angel world? Are you starting to get a lot of sharp elbows about too many investors wanting to invest? What's the environment like?
1: Here's the thing. It's really interesting. I would sum it up this way. I would say there's more supply and more demand. There are more startups seeking financing than ever before and there are more early stage investors angels funds small funds making investments than ever before so there are more dollars chasing more deals we have seen probably an uptick in overall valuations we absolutely will not chase deals we will not chase valuations we won't overpay but it can be tricky in trying to figure out what overpaying means because it's very subjective at this early stage but we have the luxury of being very picky and very selective with the deals. There are so many of them coming in and so many good quality deals that we have that luxury of being really, really selective. And it's a great thing. And even though there's a lot of competition for the deals, I think the smart founders are looking for value add investors. They realize that cash, the capital is more of a commodity. And they're saying, who can add value beyond the capital? Yeah, okay, great. You got the capital. What else can you do for me? And we are able to say that through the syndicate, we can help do an awful lot for you. We can help refer customers to you. We can help you hire talent. We can help with strategic advice. All kinds of things that our syndicate investors will do for the portfolio companies. And fortunately, since we don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk, our reputation for that precedes us and companies know that we're able to help with that. And so they seek us out as investors. Being in this for a while now, that's been something that's really been nice to see that we're getting a lot of founders who say, yeah, I've heard that about you. And that's why we want you on our cap table.
0: Yeah. I wonder how much of a trend that's going to be on the competition of looking at VCs as something the value add they bring versus just capital versus actual in a world of networks. And as you mentioned, syndicate members or fund members that could be value add, it becomes actually like a pretty definable benefit versus something that's just like, hey, we'll get on your board and help you grow. Or
1: Yeah. Some of it's sort of definable and some is like hard to define. Like for example, we help our portfolio companies all the time raise their next round. We'll help connect them with lead investors for the next round. Like I can point to examples of that with our portfolio companies, but it's sort of like they're taking our word for it that I'm going to help them. There's no way for me to to guarantee that. But if they're doing well and they're looking to raise an A round or B round, we'll help connect them to this lead investor, the VC who can lead the round. And we've done it time and time again, but there's no way to sort of like Define that in advance and guarantee that. That's one of those things that just organically happens. And that's something we've been good at. We have a nice network of VCs where they'll send us deal flow, but when the portfolio companies get big enough, we'll send the deals back to them to lead the larger
0: rounds. At this point, you know, you guys are pretty established. You've done this through a hundred different companies, essentially almost. Where do you get most of the deal flow these days? Mostly from VCs. Oh, really? Yeah, mostly VCs who are leading rounds and say, Hey, would you want
1: to join in for half a million or a million or whatever? And then more and more, it's interesting, and I love this, more and more comes from founder CEOs of our portfolio companies, referring friends and other folks they know who are founders. So we get a lot of that. And it's become really organic. There's just a lot of outreach. A lot of VCs, I always found this interesting, a lot of VCs shun inbound, cold emails, cold calls, that kind of thing, and say, no, unless it's a warm introduction, I'm not taking it. the odds of investing in a company that comes to cold out of the blue, the odds are lower, but they're not zero. So we welcome those kinds of inquiries and those kinds of outreach. It doesn't take us long to do an initial screening filtering to say whether it's quality or whether it qualifies for us or not. If it's a fit, then great. I don't care if it came in as a warm introduction, a cold introduction or no introduction. It doesn't matter. So a lot of people reach out to us through our website or through AngelList or LinkedIn, and uh, we get a lot of deal flow
0: that way as well. Tell me if this is still part of your process, but, you know, if you look at some of your early deal memos and writings and what we talked about last time, you certainly highlighted one of the things you're looking for is... Uh, a company that has a little bit of product or service revenue traction. Is that something you still want to see? And tell me kind of like for the companies out there listening, what are the main kind of bullet points you're looking for in investments in 2021?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely a hard and fast rule for us. Post-revenue companies only, sort of minimum, minimum 20000 a month revenue as like a starting point. And why do we do that? Why do we do that? We think there's this really big inflection point. Before a company generates their first revenue, it's all speculation. It's all a business plan. Will a customer actually be willing to part with their hard-earned money in exchange for that product or service? We don't know until they do it, until they make it happen. So when I say there's an inflection point, I mean that once they do make those first few sales, the risk of investing dramatically decreases. It's still high risk, let's be clear but it decreases dramatically from a pre-revenue company. But the increase in the valuation that you'll pay to invest at that stage does not increase nearly as much. So I'm willing to pay a little bit higher valuation for a post-revenue company versus pre-revenue because I'm de-risking the investment considerably. So that's why we focus on post-revenue. We wanna see some initial product market fit. Are customers willing to pay for the product? Has the company started to figure out how to efficiently acquire customers? Have they started to figure out those channels that they're going to use so that the money we invest can be fuel on the fire? If they figured out the channel and all they need is more money to pour on it and bring customers in, great. But if they haven't yet figured out how to efficiently acquire customers, then it may be a little too early for us. We also don't invest in companies that are not capital efficient. So putting it another way, we only invest in capital efficient companies. So a biotech company that has to do a ton of research and development and FDA approvals and years and years of all that, not gonna be a fit for us. We wanna see capital efficiency. We wanna see them getting up to break even cash flow positive relatively quickly. We don't want them to have to raise another round. We want them to be able to raise a round if it's gonna help their growth, but not require that just to survive. So those are some of our touchstones, the hallmarks of our criteria.
0: How often are you guys, or do you ever think of an idea that doesn't exist or you want someone to do and then kind of seek that out? Is that something that's part of your process or is it really just like looking for founders to kind of show you what they're doing?
1: I would say somewhere in between, it sometimes we'll look for sectors we want to invest in. And then within that sector, we might try to identify the best few companies to invest in. So it's not so much that we're saying, here's a particular problem that we want to solve. Let's look for a company doing it. That's a little too needle in a haystack for us. We'll look at a sector. We Like, for instance, we said, we love the legal tech space and we want to invest in more companies in the legal tech space. So we led around actually for a company called Lawmatics. We invested in that company. We've invested in a few other legal tech companies, Legal Inc. We had an exit from, they were acquired, and some others. And we'll continue to look for other opportunities in legal tech. That's a sector we really like. But we didn't go out saying, we want to find a company solving this particular problem. But generally speaking, we look at all the deals that come in and if they're solving a real pain point, if they're really solving a problem for their customers and they're doing it in a unique and differentiated way, then it's going to get our interest no matter what kind of a niche they're in, as long as the market size is pretty reasonable.
0: You mentioned sort of legal tech. Is there any other areas you're particularly as you look forward to the horizon 2022, 2023 that particularly you guys are interested, excited about? There's so many. Areas that we like invest in. But we're looking
1: for great companies in robotics. I think that's a huge area and actively looking there. And we always are looking for smart applications of AI and blockchain. Whether the individual cryptocurrencies themselves end up being successful or not is not a game I want to play. But I do like some of the applications of blockchain generally. And I think that there are some companies who are deploying that in smart ways. And certainly AI, every company says we're an artificial intelligence company. But if they're using AI in a really smart way, then they're gaining an advantage through AI, not using it just to say we're an AI company, but using it as a tool to help their customers in some really differentiated way, then that catches our interest. So those kinds of areas, definitely. But you know what? There are so many great opportunities in e-commerce and lots of SaaS companies. We just invested in a no-code development platform called Adaptation, which I'm really excited about. Sumner Vanderhoof is the CEO there and the company is doing great, making it really easy for what he calls citizen developers to add apps to their company without knowing anything about coding, which is perfect for me because I don't know how to code. You can go into this platform and you don't need to know any coding and you can build an app on top of your database or CRM and it's integrated with HubSpot, Salesforce, and all the others and make it really easy. So that's like an interesting opportunity that came up. No code is a huge growing field and it's going to grow even faster. But then like, just to make the point that these opportunities come around all the time that you'd never would think of, we invested, I don't know if you're
0: in this deal, we invested recently in NameCoach. Oh, I know you're talking about this is a cool one. Tell the audience what this is. Yeah, Name
1: Coach is such a great story, right? So, the founder, Praveen, went to his sister's college graduation, pre pandemic, of course, and they completely butchered her name at the graduation. I mean, you go know, four years into college, this is the big day, your family's there watching you graduate, and they butcher your name. So, he was like, Yeah, this is crazy. So, he built out a tool initially just for colleges to help them with name pronunciation for their students. But what he found was that companies wanted this too for lots of use cases. Internally, they want to use it so that the employees really feel like they're part of the team and everyone knows how to say their name properly. And there are all these diversity and inclusivity initiatives out there. And this fits in perfectly there, making employees feel like they're welcome and part of the team and that They're not outsiders or strangers, but also companies are using it in sales. You reach out to prospects, and if you mangle their name on a cold call, forget it. You're going to get a hang up in your face.
0: Yeah, it's one of those ideas. Look, Meb, Mebin, I get it every morning at Starbucks. I don't go to Starbucks. Pete's, my local coffee shop, Two Guns, but it's not something that you ever really feels a slight, but deep down somewhere in your soul, it's like a tiny little paper cut. But particularly, like you mentioned, in sales capacity, if someone calls you and gets your name wrong, like it's a red flag already. How about this use case?
1: One of their customers is NetJets, very upscale, expensive corporate jet leasing and chartering, right? These are small planes, private planes. If the pilot comes out or the flight attendant comes out and mispronounces the name of a customer who's paying $100,000, $200,000 a year to them or more, that customer feels slighted. It's very important to NetJets to pronounce their customers' names correctly every time. And NameCoach helps them do that. And so like you would never think of that kind of thing as being a problem, but it is. And NameCoach has built the largest, most accurate database, of name pronunciations, and it's always constantly learning from input from the customers too. So it's growing like crazy in the corporate sector. They've already like dominated the, the university's college sector, but they're really starting to gain a lot of traction with companies now for all kinds of interesting use cases. So that's one of those deals like, I never would have thought of that, even though everyone mangles my last name. I never would have thought of that. But Praveen did. He came along and said, this is a problem I can solve. And at first I was like, "Ah, okay, how big is the market for this? And when I looked into it, it's a huge market for companies who want this. And to your point, there've been like all these studies of how it makes people feel when their name is mispronounced. It's not like top of the mind. They're not like outraged, but it's a slight. And it's like death by a thousand cuts. You hear that name mispronounced so many times and it gets to you. So you want
0: to hear it pronounced correctly. And it's almost like the converse is true. If you have a terribly difficult name where every day people mispronounce it and all of a sudden somebody calls you and gets it right, you're like, whoa, (laughs) wait a second. It's so obvious. But it's like one of these classic frustration arbitrage ideas where the person, Joe Smith, is not going to ever found this company because they don't go through that experience. But somebody with a crazy challenging name to pronounce, would. That's right, exactly. It goes to the point of the best companies are
1: founded by folks who personally feel the pain point. They're personally affected by the pain point and they go out to solve it for others like them. And that's what we try to find. Founders who are intimately familiar with the pain point that they're solving and they're providing like a real solution for that because they would have benefited from having that themselves it's like the same thing with like lawmatics in a B2B sense where Matt Spiegel the founder there came out of his own law firm where things were so like done so manually that he wanted an automated solution to onboarding customers and to marketing to them communicating with them and he developed lawmatics as a way to do that so he was living the pain the frustration that small medium-sized law firms have and decided to solve it. And he certainly was not the only law firm feeling that. So fortunately, there are lots of companies, lots of law firms who are still living in the dark ages and not automated, and LawMax is helping them. So like, that's another good example.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole legal and real estate space, I mean, as we think of like this antiquated, anything that's still done on yellow rule notebook paper, there's so much and it's kind of shocking like how is there this much things that are still terrible that exist in this world and it's just huge opportunities and if someone can figure it out then boom unicorn any company automating antiquated spaces come
1: see us I love that I love automation in what is currently an antiquated manual industry and there's so many still especially government we invested in in a company called Star, and they help Automate the whole procurement process for government entities and contractors. Demand Stars another great example, but there you go. I mean, government is very antiquated on their processes. Yeah.
0: How many deals You got some deals you're working on? I got some capital, Phil. I'm ready to put it to work. Sit tight. I'm coming. Sit tight. This summer,
1: this fall, this winter, would well, give me a look. I'd say we have another one coming, probably in about two to three weeks. We're teeing up, getting ready finishing our due diligence. We call customers. We do the whole thing, speak to current investors, previous investors, previous employees that we try to find on our own, and just make sure there's nothing there that we don't know about. But once we're ready, we'll get it out to the syndicate and or the rolling fund.
0: But yeah, I figure the next deal, I think, will be probably within two to three weeks. What point does capacity become a problem for you? You keep coming on the Meb Faber show. You keep having these big unicorns doing the pitch. I mean, is there a time when you say, look, man, we got to start doing series A, series B. We're getting too big for our britches.
1: I mean, why? Why should we? Why should we? There are so many deals at this stage. Like We get the best ROI at this stage, I feel like. Just to be clear, we do plenty of series A deals. We don't do beyond that as an initial investment, but as a follow-on investment, we do. Initially, we'll invest seed or series A, but there's so many opportunities here, and this is where we get the best ROI. So why not invest just as much as we can here and then without having to look up market where ROI is not going to be as good? And plus, we have so many VC partners who are doing B rounds and later that I'd rather let them take it from there and then refer the deals at the earlier stages to us. It's just a really nice symbiotic relationship we have
0: awesome when can i put the next breakfast on the calendar you think in fall time in the summer
1: yeah that's what i'm thinking probably let's see i'm guessing like probably september maybe october it takes a little while to plan these things florida atlanta new york where are you going to do it new york so we have a, a lot of concentration of investors there and so that's one reason plus my younger son just moved there So I'm always looking for excuses to go to New York, visit him. We have a lot of portfolio companies there. So that's helpful in terms of the presentations at the breakfast. But then we'll do a West Coast. Now, we've always done San Francisco. You're in L.A. I'd like to do an L.A. one. We have a lot of investors in L.A. We have some portfolio companies in Southern Cal. So I'd like to do one there. And then after that, next year, we'll look at middle of the country, Maybe Chicago or maybe Atlanta to come back to East Coast, but South.
0: Good. We'll co host one with you in LA. So let me know. We haven't done one in a while. It's time to get back out in the world.
1: Oh, that would be great. I'd love that. Yeah, we have some good portfolio companies there that will come and give us updates. We do the updates from the portfolio companies and we try to get a couple of new companies in that we haven't invested in yet and get them to present. If I can, I'd love to get Luis from Remove to fly down to LA and do a
0: presentation so we can. you're his. For sure. We can do a drop off with all your stuff and do a test case on how much money you save by getting rid of all your junk. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love doing them. I can't wait to get back to doing them. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person.
0: Where do people go? They want to send you some deals. They want to invest. They want to keep up with what you're up to. What are all the spots?
1: Yeah. Forefrontvp.com forefront V is in Victor P is in peter.com for forefront venture partners is one good place that's certainly you can connect with us there LinkedIn Phil Nadel I'm on LinkedIn I'm on Twitter angelist is always great so you can reach out to me on angelist but you can also find links to invest in the syndicate and the rolling fund on angelist so just do a search for forefront you'll find us and they could always ask you to put them in touch too. I know you'll do
0: it. Awesome. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, It's my
1: pleasure, Meb. I really appreciate you having me. It's always great catching up with you and looking forward to seeing you again soon.
0: Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe the show anywhere good podcasts are found thanks for listening friends and good investing